This is the STEM Read Podcast. I'm Jillian King Cargyle. I'm a writer, a book lover, and the director of NIU's STEM Read. This episode is called Batman is a Maker. From clever costumed superheroes to persistent little girls, makers come in all shapes and sizes. In this episode, we'll highlight new stories that focus on thinking, tinkering, and making. First, I'll interview Ruth Spiro, author of Made by Maxine and the Baby Love Science series, about her latest book, Maxine and the Greatest Garden Ever. The book explores the friendship between two very different makers who want to build, grow, and make the world a little more functional and fabulous than they found it. After that, I'll interview Varian and Darian Johnson. They're twin brothers with backgrounds in structural engineering and technology, and they just collaborated on a Batman comic in the new DC book, Flash Facts, 10 Terrific Tales About Science and Technology. The comic anthology, edited by Mayim Bialik, shares fun adventures with superheroes exploring everything from 3D printing to the depths of the ocean to the vast of space. Just like their characters, all of my guests approach writing and problem-solving in different ways, and their stories are showing us that the maker movement has moved out of people's garages and into the mainstream. Maybe after listening, you will get inspired to do some making of your own or take your tinkering to the next level. Here's my interview with author Ruth Spiro. Hi, I'm Ruth Spiro, and I'm a children's book author. I live in the northern suburbs of Chicago, and most of my books have a STEM focus. We've had you on the program to talk about your Baby Love Science series, and you were at STEM Fest a few years ago to talk about Made by Maxine, and now we're excited to talk about your newest book. One of the things I really love about the Maxine books and other books in the STEM area is that we're really starting to see creators expanding their views on what engineers and makers look like. So tell us how you created the character of Maxine. Maxine actually started out as a completely different character. I had written a picture book about a woman who drove a pickup truck. And when I sent it to my agent, she liked it, but she said, you know, I really think that we do better with books that have a child main character. So can you rewrite this, but with a child? And I said, well, given the fact that she drives a pickup truck, no, I don't think that would work. So I started to think about what this character would have been like as a little girl, what the qualities would have been like, what she would have liked to do. And at the same time, I was also a freelance writer. I was writing a lot of articles for Family Fun magazine. My editor there had given me an assignment to do some research into the maker movement. And this was way back, like in, I think, 2013, maybe. I mean, this was way before there were maker spaces and libraries and people had 3D printers in their homes. I mean, this was like people in garages and it was very rough and it was very early. I, you know, was looking into ways that parents could incorporate making and STEM into things that they were doing at home with their kids. And through this, I had an opportunity to meet and speak with a lot of people who were makers. And I was just so fascinated with the different characteristics, the different things they like to do and the projects that they were working on. And I thought, this is exactly who this little girl is. She likes to make things, not necessarily in a crafty sense, but more in a tinkering and building and designing sense. As you were doing your research, were there any specific things that you found people making that really spoke to you and inspired the character? So I was really interested in the different reasons why people were making things. Some people were testing out new technologies. Some people were trying to invent new things. Some people were trying to fix things that were broken or improve upon things and make them better. So there were all these different reasons that people had for engaging in these activities. And I really liked the idea of taking something that maybe was broken or something that was in the recycling bin and using it to make something else 
and also taking something that was already in, in existence and improving it and making it better. So I decided that that was going to be the motor that was driving Maxine as a character was that she liked to make things better. So how have readers and teachers responded to Maxine? People have been very excited about it. I mean, educators really love the book because it doesn't mention the engineering design process, but it basically follows the steps in that where you come up with an idea for something and you might prototype it and try it out. And then if it doesn't work, you make some you know changes and then you try it again. So it's sort of a real life demonstration of what that looks like. And there's a real strong theme of persistence. Maxine, when she fails at something she's trying to make, she says, I've already discovered a million ways that won't work, which means I'm getting closer to finding a way that will. So she doesn't let failing deter her. She takes it all in stride. I know that when my girls were little, you know, sometimes they would try to do something and if it didn't work out, they would get so frustrated and upset with themselves. I really wanted to show a character who has that persistence and looks at everything as more of a journey as opposed to, you know, I'm trying to come up with this final thing and if it doesn't work, then I'm a failure. It's like, no, I'll try this. Oh, that didn't work. Well, let me see what else I can do that might work. So teachers especially are really excited about that particular aspect. And I know parents are as well. They love the fact that, you know, she doesn't get frustrated when things don't work out. And I do have to mention this as well, because this is something that's very important to me and something that I've also seen out in my uh, visits and presentations that I've done. A book like this, it's a book that has a strong girl as a main character. It's important for girls to have this as an example, but I also think it's really important for boys to see this as well. And some people will pick up a book and it's like, there's a girl on the front cover. Oh, this is a girl's book. And I really wanted to make sure that people will see and understand that it's not just a book for girls, that it's important for boys to also see girls succeeding in these types of activities as well. Absolutely. You know, I hope we're at a point where we're starting to move past that idea of girl books and boy books. Yeah, not (laughs) everywhere though, not everywhere. I like that you've brought in characters that do stretch those ideas of different traditional gender roles, which is what's happening in the second Maxine book as well. So why don't you talk a little bit about what Maxine is up to in her new adventure? So in the first book, Maxine adopts a goldfish named Milton. And she just falls in love with Milton and she believes that he deserves a better home than a boring glass bowl. And so she sets about making him a better home. And then there's a class pet parade and she wants to figure out a way to include Milton in the pet parade with all the other pets who have feet. So she comes up with a very creative way of including Milton in the class pet parade. And in book two, we see Maxine with her friend and her her friend's name is Leo. They decide that they are going to make a garden and it's not a garden like anything you've ever seen. She applies her maker skills to creating this garden. Leo, her friend, he likes to make things too, but in a different way. And he's actually more crafty. He likes to sew. He likes to draw. He's a little bit more artsy in his making. So there's a little bit of a clash between the two friends in how they're going to make the garden. And then they run into some trouble in their garden. So it's about how they deal with that problem. So it's about making and creating and gardening, but it's also a friendship story. It's also about how we can work together and how we need to compromise and how we can recognize other people's strengths and use those and appreciate those. It's called Maxine and the Greatest Garden Ever. There's so many fun things in this book. I love the art. Again, you have a great illustrator that you work with. Yes, I always have to mention Holly Haddam. She did such an amazing job with the illustrations. It's almost like a Where's Waldo where there's so much to look at on each page. And she, I still, every time I look at it, I, I notice something different because she hides all these little critters and these little signs and pictures on the wall and it's so detailed and it's so much fun to look at. She also is the illustrator of Dear Boy and Dear Girl 
in that series because she's really just does such an amazing job. There is so much to look at. <laughs> do you give her many notes or do you just strictly give her the text for the stories? You know, there are certain things that I do give notes for because, for example, in the first book, when Maxine is creating certain contraptions, I had based the what I wrote on certain things that either I had seen or that I had, you know, imagined. And I mean, I think it's really important to give the illustrator a lot of flexibility in creating things themselves because, I mean, she adds so much more to the book than I would have if I just drew it myself. We work through our, my editor and her art director. I think that's an interesting thing, both in the story of the book and the creation of the book, you have different people bringing different skills to that end product. So we've got Maxine with her more technical skills, and then we've got Leo with his more artistic skills. Why did you want to show both sides of that design process? Why was that an important part of this story? I think it's really important for kids to see that we all have different strengths and we all can bring different things to a project or to a friendship. I think it's important just to highlight the fact that everyone has different ways of doing things. And just because I like to do something in a certain way, that doesn't mean it's the right way, doesn't mean it's the wrong way. And I might have particular talents, like my talent is writing, it's not drawing. So I bring in an illustrator and her talent is the visual aspect of it. Putting those two together makes the book a better experience. I don't know. I just, I like to show the fact that there are a lot of different ways that we can make and create. All these ways are valid and all these ways are important. I would love if children would use these as as a jumping off point to try to discover what their unique talent is and what they enjoy doing and what they want to learn about. Maybe you you don't consider yourself good at something because you've never tried it before. So why not give it a try and see if it's something, you know, you may be very good at it. That's an important thing to learn (laughs) at any age, right? (laughs) Right. As we work with kids at STEM Read and we see them work in groups, you get this feeling that you have to be good at everything, right? That if you, if you can't do something, then you're a failure and you're never going to succeed at, at any of it. You know, that's kind of the worst case scenario. But it, it is kind of nice to find that place where you fit and to see where you can bring in other people, like Maxine being so good at the practical sides of the designs and, and Leo being good at like, hey, how can we make this more sparkly? How can we make this more fancy? Exactly, exactly. So it's a matter of you, you know, bringing what you have to the table um, and recognizing what other people might be good at. And also, like I said, you know, like a lot of these are brand are new technologies, you know, between coding and circuits and 3D printing and just all, you know, all these different things are they're new. And so kids are learning how to do these things and adults are learning how to do them. I just think it's important to try different things because you just don't know if you're going to be good at it unless you, you give it a try. And, you know, maybe your friend is really good at something. Well, maybe they can help you learn it and vice versa. And I think now about with the maker movement, there's so much technology that can go into crafting and, and sewing and things like that. Right. Right. I've seen, just some of the most amazing things, you know, people with clothes that are lighting up and QR codes. And just, I mean, it's just, it's amazing. It just, it's like the sky's the limit, really. That's right. Like Maxine says, if I can dream it, I can build it. (laughs) And I really believe that the technology now exists to, that, that makes that true. So you talked about persistence Mm -hmm. in the first Maxine book. In the second book, after they fail, they have a little falling out. Not only do they think about how to make their design better, but they really rethink what the purpose of their design should be. I love that you put in that in there. And I think that that idea of persistence and of moving through failure is something that as writers, we, uh, we have to do a lot. How does that relate to your writing career or your writing process? Well, it's interesting because it really does parallel the writing process. I mean, you get an idea for something and the first thing you need to do is just kind of write it down and make a rough draft. And it almost never works that first time. I mean, I don't know anybody who's just written something and said, hey, this is perfect. I'm done. You know, you go back and you revise things and you change things and you 
think about you know, what is it that I want to say? What do I want to accomplish here? It's a matter of going back and forth and making changes and tinkering around. And I see a lot of parallels between the scientific method and the engineering design process and the writing process. And sometimes, to go back to what you said about Maxine and her garden, sometimes you realize that this is not exactly the problem I want to solve. Maybe there's something else Maybe I have a different end goal and that's okay. It's all about the steps that you take along the way and not looking at it like if you don't reach that final destination, you're a failure and it doesn't work because sometimes you have to modify even what you want that final destination or that final outcome or product or story. You just need to modify what you want that to be too. But you don't know until you set out in that direction. Until you write a story about a truck driver. (laughs) Exactly. And then you realize, oh, no, that's not going to work. I better make some changes here. So it's the persistence, but it's also flexibility. You know, as a parent, I know these are things that kids have a really tough time with sometimes. So when they see characters in books that give examples of what that looks like, hey, that's okay. Like, I can make some changes and I can you know, not be successful in my first attempt. You know, it's just recognizing that in a character and then maybe understanding that that's something that it can apply to themselves in in their own lives as well. I like that idea of being able to adjust. Teaching kids that even when you don't necessarily know where you're going, it's okay to, to try different paths to get there. Yes, exactly. Did you start growing a victory garden? Are you a gardener? I grow vegetables and I also plant containers of flowers all over my backyard. We did a vegetable garden last spring in the first stages of lockdown. And we were like, how can we continue to do this? We better garden. Um, (laughs) And it seemed like a good idea, but it was It was really interesting to see all of the ways that STEM and STEAM can play out in a garden. So I I think that's another great aspect of this book is just you have the making, but you've also got agriculture in there and you've got nature, all of the weird bugs that we saw when we started gardening. Yes. All of the things that critters ate and didn't eat. So I, I really think there's a lot of possibilities for people, you know, to take this book outside and to try some of the things that Maxine and Leo are trying and, and really just see what happens. Like we have a backyard, Maxine has a backyard. I grew up in an apartment building. I did not have a backyard. You know, I always try to be aware of the different resources that people might have. Back in the spring, uh, there were all these uh, posts on social media, people who were like taking vegetables and regrowing them. Like if you cut Mm -hmm. off the top of a carrot and put it in a dish of water, you can regrow the carrot greens. So there's so many things that you could do, even if you don't have like a big piece of land, you can plant things. If you have a balcony, you can just have a sunny spot on the window and you can grow a basil plant or you can grow tomatoes in containers. I like to share ideas for things that anybody can do no matter where they are. And I think kids are fascinated with watching things grow. And I mean, how amazing is it to plant a seed and watch it sprout? I mean, even if you plant some grass seed, and watch that grow and you can give it a haircut and see what happens and try different windows. And it is such a wonderful connection to STEM and to science, but also just to like the world, like where, where do the vegetables on my plate come from? Like somebody grew these. If you can visit a farmer's market and buy vegetables from the person who grew it. I mean, how amazing is that? So I do think that there are some really great connections that I try to layer into this book for both school and for being at home, no matter where you are. You just heard my interview with Ruth Spiro. Up next is my interview with Varian and Darian Johnson. Ruth Spiro's latest book is Maxine and the Greatest Garden Ever. I'll admit that I do not have a green thumb, and I'm not a fan of bugs, but after reading the book and talking to Ruth, I'm ready to trick out my garden this spring and see what we can grow. It might be dirty, there might be parasitic wasps laying eggs on tomato worms, we might accidentally plant turnips, but it's all part of the fun. 
And speaking of fun, STEMREAD and NIU STEAM have been hard at work creating everything from virtual STEAM literacy nights to online after-school programs to full-blown virtual STEM demo shows. And I'm excited to announce that some of our most popular STEMREAD field trips are now available as online STEMREAD experiences. We've created new online games, expert interviews, and hands-on challenges that schools and libraries can use for remote or blended learning. Our latest game, Saving Lincoln, was inspired by the book The Detective's Assistant by Kate Hannigan and real historical events surrounding the Baltimore plot to assassinate Abraham Lincoln on the way to his first inauguration. An angry mob attempting to disrupt the peaceful transition of power? I know what you're thinking. It is historical and timely at the same time. Find out how your school or library can register for this or other upcoming events and shows at stemread.com. Up next is my interview with Varian and Darian Johnson, who just collaborated on a Batman comic in the new DC book Flash Facts, 10 Terrific Tales About Science and Technology. The comic anthology was edited by Mayim Bialik, who is a real-life PhD and one of the stars of The Big Bang Theory. Varian Johnson is the author of several books for middle-grade readers, including the phenomenal book The Parker Inheritance, which was named a Coretta Scott King honor book. It's a twisty mystery that explores everything from codes to the history of systemic racism, and I highly recommend it. Before becoming an author, Varian Johnson was a structural engineer designing bridges all across Texas. His twin brother, Darian Johnson, works for a large technology company where he leads major cloud computing initiatives. He is also a hobbyist maker of electronic and 3D printed projects. His projects have been granted patents, have won multiple awards, and have been featured in numerous publications. Here's my interview with Varian and Darian Johnson. My name is Varian Johnson. I am a full-time writer. I primarily write books for middle grade, ages 8 to 12, some for young adult as well, some for a little bit younger. Uh, and in the prior life, I was a structural engineer designing bridges all over the country, primarily uh, here in Texas. If you've ever driven to DFW Airport, you've probably driven over one of my bridges. Uh, and I'm Darian Johnson. I am not a full-time author. <laughs> I guess I am a first-time author. I am a technology consultant, so I spend most of my time helping clients of my company adopt technology, adopt cloud primarily. And as an offshoot of that, maybe five or six years ago, I started dabbling in, in what we call the maker space or the maker community. So that's using hobbyist, uh, hobbyist electronics and 3D printing and crafting and sewing even to build products and materials. And that that hobbyist work and that Professional work merges in and out certain times. And for the people who can't see you on the podcast, you're also twins. We are also <laughs> twins, yes. That is correct. That is correct. <laughs> okay. What were you two like as students? Did you always see yourself as more technical-minded people? I think so. I mean, I'll, I'll speak for me and I'll, I'll let V talk about himself. I tell people all the time, when I was in second grade, I wanted to be a police officer. So not necessarily patrolling the streets. I wanted to work in the lab. Like I wanted to be like Barry Allen. I, I thought that was the greatest job in the world, you know, involved the science. And I've always tended towards that. I've always been interested in science and technology, which is what guided my path in high school, which is what guided my career path in college and what guides the work I do today. And the same with me. I think I've always been technically inclined, but I think when I was younger, I believed just because you're good at something, you should do it. And that's not always the case. Math, science, things focused on technology certainly came easier to me when I was younger, but I had a real passion for creative writing, uh, a real passion for reading books and, and writing them. And I struggled with that. I was not as good at that, uh, with that as I was with math and science. So I had to grow and learn how to do it. For sure, an emphasis and a love for science and math came first. Then you both also have these things that you do. Like you said, Varian, you transitioned into being a full-time writer and Darian, you are a part of the maker movement. So yeah. how, did, how did your careers lead you in this more artistic direction? At work, for work, my day job, I was looking to learn more about cloud technology. So cloud technology, for those who aren't aware, is, is about taking compute and storage and just doing things that you might do on a computer or a 
physical server in a location and then using that in the cloud. So have, using someone else's hardware. I was looking to get some additional certification to learn more about it. And I am not a, a learner by reading. I'm a learner by doing. So I start playing around and trying to understand how this thing works. And that led me towards building some you know, little hello world piece of code, which then led to a more complex piece of code, which led to integration with hardware, which led to 3D printing, which led to laser engraving, which, le <laughs> which leads to the thousands of dollars of, of electronics and hardware that's in my office today. So that's how I fell into it. And I love it. And it complements my day work and the day work complements the hobbyist work. I loved writing. I just always did it. In college, I started writing for hopefully publication. And for a long time, I thought, well, I'll do both of these. And I did them for a long time. What helped was that in my job as an engineer, I spent about 10 years working as a bridge designer. And then I transitioned to a role working in sales and marketing. The company I worked for was really looking for folks who understood the technical aspects of, of how to uh, win work, how to go after work. And they wanted to apply folks with that technical know-how to their sales and marketing team. So we could transcribe kind of the engineering know-how into talk that was suitable for an awards committee kind of to look at if we're trying to, to win work or if we're trying to give presentations. So I transitioned to that job and I really realized that my love for writing complemented that really, really well. When you think about writing, when you think about a graphic novel or a comic book, you have only a certain amount of space to add captions and dialogue. You have to be very specific with what you're saying and how you're trying to say it while still getting across the voice and the feel of that. And I really kind of honed my skills doing this work for my engineering company. And eventually just got to the point where I couldn't do both. Book-wise, things were going really, really well. I was visiting a lot of schools and doing a lot of presentations that was taking me more and more away from the job. It turns out folks really prefer you to be in the office, at least back then when you're doing work. So um, I resigned and that was about four years ago. Well, that's awesome. And yeah, I, I worked as a technical writer as well. And I think that that really does help you focus in on exactly what you need to say. You know, you have so little time, you have to keep people's interest, but really get across everything technically that the people need to know to do what they need to do. I worked in healthcare software, so you didn't want to make a mistake. <laughs> yeah. Even though I think it's really interesting with like technical writing, many people think it's very dry and even devoid of emotion. And certainly there are parts of it that are probably less interesting than others, but they can still have a voice. It can still say certain in the way to make the reader feel something, move something. You can set up a story when you're driving them to look at this data and, and what you're presenting. Well, I mean, the other thing is like, I think many people believe that if I'm focused in science and engineering and math, I don't have to be good at something else. Like you have to be able to explain an idea or a concept, a technology concept to a way that someone who understands the technology and who doesn't understand the technology would comprehend. So the, the writing piece of it uh, is extremely important. I, I push back on any notion where people say you don't have to be good at, uh, at writing and communication and you can be, uh, you can focus on stuff. That's just me. Absolutely. Yeah, there were definitely engineers that we go, what did he say? Okay, now tell me what he said. <laughs> and you'd go through about three different people and go, okay, now I see what we're doing. Exactly. So what are some of those other similarities then between your technical interests and your more artistic interests? Are there ways that you see a lot of similarities between the processes or um, are there skills that transfer between them very easily? Um, you know, I think it, it's interesting, and I'd be curious what Darian has to say about this. I think when you go through engineering school, part of the job is not necessarily memorizing how to do something, but there's figuring out how to solve something, not necessarily the exact steps, but the thought process of how to attack and approach a problem. And I think about books in the same way. When I used to design bridges, I would all, often tell folks, especially younger engineers coming up, that we design from the top down and we build from the bottom up primarily, traditionally. Um, and I think books are the same way. I have these big ideas that I'm thinking about, but then I have to think about how do those filter through the book? And then as I'm building it, I have to think about all the building blocks with plot and dialogue and point of view and voice, all these pieces to get across this overarching theme to literally and figuratively get someone from one place to another place. So the thought process to me certainly goes into my book writing. And that's true for whether it's something that's very technical or very puzzly, like uh, my book, The Parker Inheritance, or things that are more straightforward as well to you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the same thing. I work in the technology field and my 
hobbyist work is technology related. So it's definitely more of an intertwine. I tell people all the time, whether you are working with me in my professional day capacity or collaborating with me on the project, is that your most important tool is a notebook. Your notebook is the most important thing. And in that notebook, you should have ideas and you should have plans. Plan the work and you work the plan. And having that discipline, whether it's designing a system for a Fortune 500 company or building a display using the Raspberry Pi and, and parts from another company. So same idea. Have a plan, have an outcome and work that plan. And I assume it's the same thing for books. I don't know. When you write, you have a you outline stuff, I assume. You have a, a rough sketch. You certainly have a deadline where you got to get to, right? Uh, you know. Yeah. No, a rough, uh, <laughs> a rough star. <laughs> a hard, sometimes they're a suggestion. And I think a lot, there's lots of different ways to write a book. I certainly will outline for a lot of them, but I think of outlines kind of sort of like a roadmap, um, but one that I can deviate from. Many right. people don't use them, right? They just kind of write big and then they cut and kind of chisel away at that marble and to create their masterpiece, hopefully. There's lots of different ways to do it. I certainly like outlines, but that's not the only way to write a book. Yeah, it's a little more forgiving, I would say, uh, planning a book than planning a bridge, right? <laughs> a little bit easier really, to go back. That's true. It's hard to just wing it when you're doing a bridge. And I will say, like, and again, Darian can speak to this as well, you have to have a plan. We have a bunch of people working together. I think when we worked on the short story for flashbacks, we had to outline a plan and talk about the characters and what we wanted because right. it wouldn't make any sense for me to kind of go off spiraling and him to go off spiraling. Uh, when I'm working solo, I have more of an opportunity to do that. But even then, again, for all of my graphic novel projects, at some point, the cartoonist, the illustrator comes on board and then we've got to make sure we're aligned on, on that vision. So let's talk about flashbacks then. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is and what your story is? Uh, sure. I I just think of it as a fun way to explore STEM using some of uh, DC's favorite and most well-known characters. And, you know, as someone who loves STEM or even STEAM, right, with the arts as well, I think it's a great opportunity to have something that's fun or funny and engaging in a way that also provides information and in a way that doesn't feel like someone's lecturing at you. And that's certainly the take that we wanted to approach when we approach our Batman story, if you can't take the heat. Darian can talk a little bit more about that if you'd like to. No, I mean, yeah, we just wanted it to be fun. Like we wanted it to be a story where someone who was not necessarily interested in STEM would read it and enjoy it. And maybe they would pick up some things along the way. That was our approach in writing it. And, uh, and I think you see that in how we've written the story. It's a fun story. And by the way, if you're reading, you learn that there's this thing called 3D printing and there's this stuff called filament and it's made up of different types of plastic with different materials. And they use that technology to solve the problem. So I, I liked it a lot. It was a really fun story to write. Uh, I was just gonna add, you know, and we approach it because let's take Batman and Robin, right? You know, before Robin came along, you have Batman, he has no one to talk to. So there's no way to convey information right and we felt that was really important in this story we needed we wanted batman like we we're huge batman fans and you know and if you ever 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 crack at trying to write the batman you want to take your shot at it Absolutely. so um we we loved that but we knew we needed someone else a foil for him to explain things to you and then the way they would bring humor to the story and plastic man just seemed like a, a perfect fit they're opposite characters opposite personalities opposite strengths and superpowers and Batman has none besides being extremely wealthy and extremely smart, right? No, we thought that that mix would make sense. So how did you get Batman? Was that one of the things you were like, dibs on Batman? If we're doing this, we're doing Batman? Or what, what was the process we, like? When Varian reached out, he said, hey, so he's the author. So he's plugged into the author community. I am not. So like, hey, they're talking to some folks at this thing. I can't tell you the details, but they want us to maybe write something together. Are you in? I've asked them and they, they said, it makes sense given your background in additive manufacturing, 3D printing, um, and just my degree. My degree is in mechanical engineering. So I agreed. And then we started talking about ideas. And I don't think either of us thought that the Batman was an, was an option. Uh, I think we were thinking of a few other characters. And as we thought through ideas that made sense, we really said, you know, look, Batman makes things. He's got a batarang. He's got all these tools in the Batcave. Like today's version of Batman would have a 3D printer. He'd have an extremely expensive 3D printer that he can manufacture and test all of his parts. And he just, he just would. So why don't we ask them? And if they say, no, we've got some other ideas. So there's three or three other characters that make sense in this as well. Um, but they said, yes. <laughs> Once they said, yes, I, we were like, let's, let's go. All right. Um, and we started kicking around ideas on who the right arch nemesis would be, 
who the sidekick would be because we think especially with batman you've got to have someone he talks to that's why robin's so important right because batman needs a robin to explain his rationale and his reasoning and to maybe make him less dark right so plastic man was a was a good bet especially as we thought through using plastics and 3d printing and it just fell into place from there i'd say the, the hardest part for us was understanding what villain made the most sense in theory, when you make and you use 3D printing or you make any kind of additive manufacturing part, you make it for a reason, either to be very strong or be very flexible, to resist heat or resist cold. So we started thinking through which villains have those extremes that make the story make sense. And um, Firefly certainly made sense. All right, he's got this fire, this torch, he's burning things down. I need a material that's heat resistant. I can use my 3D printer to make that and then stop the bad guy. I, I love that idea that, of course, Batman is a maker, right? <laughs> Where does he get such wonderful he's, toys? He's a, exactly. He's the superhero patron state of makers. Has yeah. to be, right? Has to be. So what was it like working together? Had you worked together on any similar projects before or did it come very naturally? You know, it, it actually was less painful than I thought it would be, you know, uh, <laughs> Darian's hard at it, right? So uh, I thought we would get through. I thought this is 12 pages. We can make it through 12 pages and probably still be speaking to each other at the end of it, even if it doesn't go well. And it was a really, really pleasant experience. I was able to bring some of my know-how in on just writing and scripting graphic novels and thinking about the pacing and how to relay information. And certainly he brought a lot of that in as well too. I think, you know, he knocks himself about being just the kind of the technical know-how, but you know, he's a very good writer as well too. I would love for him to get back more to writing, just hint, hint. But, uh, you know, certainly he has way more experience than I do with 3D printing. I, that, I do not live in that world. So it was great when we got to that stuff, he could think through, well, okay, this is how it will work. This is how it will look. These are the pieces that Batman is going to need to explain as he's constructing his wonderful toys. Look, I, I'll be the first to say I've got a little bit of an ego. I think you got to have an ego to be successful sometimes, but this is a place where I, there was no place for me to have an ego. Varian is an accomplished writer. He's written a bunch of really good books that I enjoy and, and my kids, my family enjoy. So like, he's got to take the lead on this. And he, when we first started, he's like, here's the outline and here's this tool and here's this thing I use. And I'm like, well, I don't even, like, why do you indent this way? Why do you capitalize this? Why is... Batman capitalized here. And he's like, well, it's easier for such and such. I'm like, okay, let's go with it. Um, so I learned a lot in doing it. And then I really liked being able to share a little bit of my world with him. I love making. I have two 3D printers in my office right now. I have a laser printer. I have three computers. I have a separate desk that is full of electronics and a soldering iron and a bit supply and a multimeter. And being able to share some of that just with him, just as brothers, I thought was really cool. I, I really enjoyed being able to to have them see that part of my world a little bit. Absolutely. And I think that 3D printers are something that a lot of schools now and a lot of libraries have. They get them, they're like, we have a maker space, we have a 3D printer, we're doing yeah. steam, bam. Yeah. And then they're like, what happens next? So yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd yeah. like to hear your thoughts on what some of those applications are and how they relate to what will be happening in technology and also in, in other material right. sciences going forward. So, I mean, there are a lot of things. When I think about making and 3D printing, there's some people who 3D print just to 3D print. So they 3D print because they've designed something or they found a free design online and they want to print a, a dinosaur or a coaster. And that totally makes sense. My 3D printing is almost always related to a function. So I'm almost always embedding 3D printing with some kind of electronics or some kind of other kind of device. So one of the things that I did, one of my first projects was to build a uh, composter. I wanted to make better compost. I wanted to make better compost and I needed to use a 3D printer to design the components that would go into my compost with electronics to let me know if it was too hot or too cold or too dry or too moist, to stir it, to spin it, whatever. I think today, almost every company uses some type of additive manufacturing to prototype a design before it gets to scale. 3D printing is more expensive than other forms of manufacture, but you're able to iterate very quickly, right? I'm able to design something very quickly and then depending on the size of design, an hour to a day, had that thing in my hand and see, does it meet the dimension of requirements? Will it fit here? Will it hold X? Will it hold Y? And then I can use different materials to test other parts. So like the composter needed to be water resistant. It needed to be able to be wet and not biodegrade. So I chose materials that could be stuck in the soil or stuck in the compost and would hold up over time. So I think you can test those things as well. Like 3D printing is a doorway to creating things that you can sell and develop and create mass market. More companies are moving to it every day. 
You know, one thing that we uh, did in the book that I think was really important was we showed a blueprint, kind of a map, a modeling before the suit was printed. Yeah. And I think that's really, really important when you think about 3D printing, certainly in my job. In design, uh, right? Yeah. In design, right? You know, we you can't build a bridge until you design it. So even Amen. if you calculate all the, the stresses and the strengths and such, you've got to develop it in a way they can hand to someone else to build. You've got to have an idea on the sizes and, and the limits, the geometry, everything to make it actually work. Right. We will often say in design, like, hey, it's great if you design it, but if you can't build it, then who cares? And so we thought it was really important to show that design aspect of it too, at least yeah. in a, a handful of panels before we showed it being constructed. I mean, right. yeah, I mean, got to have a plan. I mean, design, plan, all that. Got to have that written down, thought through as you build and make anything. Yeah. I think that the 3D printing thing is also very interesting in terms of what's been happening with 3D printing and the COVID response, yes. you know, from the ventilator parts to also the mask. Yes. I don't know what they're called. The, the, the mask holder clip things. Yes. Yeah. Ear savers. We call them ear savers sometimes. Ear savers. You, don't have to, you don't have to put them on, right. For those who are not aware, right. Right. Most masks go around your ear, but they've got small clips that you can 3D print that will hold the, the band in place. So it's not on your ear causing irritation. Yes. Um, and almost and many of those are 3D printed, 3D printed with different types of materials, depending on the, the need and the flexibility of everything. Yes. Right. So that was really cool to see that you get long term, this is going to be amazing for businesses, but also in the short term, there's some really right. creative things that average people can do that make a huge difference. Yeah. No, the 3D printing community was fantastic when kind of the call went out to say, hey, we need materials. Uh, we need these parts. Here's a design. Here's a free design. Anyone can download and this is how you print it. Here's the, the type of filament you use. And this is where you send them. Like, I'm really proud of being part of that community that works together to get those things out. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I love the way that the flashbacks use high interest stories and characters to introduce STEM concepts to readers who might not necessarily think of themselves as future STEM professionals or who might not even see themselves as, as interested in those topics at all. And I think uh, Varian, I loved The Parker Inheritance. I, I thought it was a great book. And that's another book too that uses puzzles and wordplay, math concepts, historical events, but it's in the context of a treasure hunt, but all of those skills also really translate nicely into preparing for STEM careers. So what advice do you two have for getting more students and especially traditionally underrepresented students into STEM careers and, and STEM pathways? I think, you know, so, some of it is just seeing more trailblazers. I think that the more we see people doing things in these positions, the more uh, folks will believe that they can do it as well too. You know, we just had an operation where Kamala Harris, Vice President Kamala Harris was elected, first woman vice president, first black vice president, first Indian American vice president. And I think that makes a difference for someone who aspires to that. And so I think about that in all of these other roles and ways where we can show women and people of color in a prominent technical position, providing technical know-how. So there's a roadmap for, for folks to follow it. That being said, there's also really great, I, libraries are great. So many of the libraries that I visit do such a great job of creating a makerspace and creating opportunities to explore all of these different things. So you can create, libraries aren't just for books and getting information, they're for creating things and to learn about everything as well too. So it's always, you know, keeping libraries open, keeping them funded, keeping uh, school librarians in school. I think that's certainly a pathway to get there. And I, I'm going to answer the question, but I want to talk a little bit about this, this concept of libraries and makerspaces. I think it's a phenomenal idea. You've got the ability to go to a library, participate in a number of different programs, find books, read books, and then you have the opportunity to build and make things. It, it just feels like you touch different parts of the brain, different parts of ideation and creativity by having that there. Like I'm all in on the concept of libraries having a wing of the library or part of the library for making and maker makerspace activities. That brings the makers to the library to do more reading. It brings readers uh, to the library to potentially participate in some of the making activities. I'm all in. I, I wish every library would build it. And I'm waiting for my local library to get their act. They're starting. And I won't I won't name the library to, to shame them, but they know they know who they are. Um, um, back to your other question. Like I think that technology is an enabler. Um, I say that at work every day, right? Technology doesn't know a gender. Technology doesn't know a color. 
technology doesn't know religion. Now, clearly there's some nuance to that as you, as you do different things outside of writing a piece of code or something, I clearly get that. But being able to be technical and getting across your idea, a technical idea across in a way that people can understand, anybody can do that if you put in the work and put in the time. And there are a number of programs that are available, both structured from a school perspective and unstructured, like online learning, that allow people to get more technical, to gain more technical skills, and then maybe obtain more technical jobs and do more technical work, and then hire other technical people as well. That's what I think. And that's what I tell my folks every day at work. You know, we were members of an organization called the National Society of Black Engineers while in college. And Nesby has this great arm that goes into high schools as well, too, to encourage engineering and STEM. And, and there are a number of organizations like that. I think Darian is right. Technology doesn't have a race or gender, but the more diverse and inclusive our teams are, the better product we're going to get because we bring right. our backgrounds and our knowledge to something, you know, engineering is applied sciences, right? You're taking science and you're applying it for the betterment of a thing or a person or a community. And you need people from all different types of backgrounds and communities to help make that thing you're doing even better. So that's why I always stress it's the education and it's being purposely inclusive and diverse in all levels of STEAM and engineering and science and math from elementary on up through folks working. You're spot on. Like, I mean, let's take a simple piece of technology, right? Early video calls, great technology, probably designed and QA'd and tested with people who may not have dark hair, like you or I. So when the earlier ones come came out, like half my head was off, like half, like literally like half my skull was off because it thought the dark hair was a background. And that if you include people of a diverse background and development or something like that, and then the testing, you don't get that problem, right? We see it, we still see it today, but I think that we are uh, slowly making progress. I think we're getting there. I hope we're getting there too. And right now, as we're continuing to deal with the pandemic and our reckoning with the systemic racism and the widespread rejection of uh, science and facts, what role do you think that uh, storytelling might play in changing people's views and hopefully moving towards uniting the country? Oh, it's, it's so important. I don't know if I can stress that enough. Just the idea of what we're saying based on Fact. I really hate the term alternate facts because I don't know what that means. There are facts and then there are not facts. Um, <laughs> and there's so many great books and stories that relay facts, relay information in the formative ways. We have something like Fallish Facts, which I would call informational fiction. It's fiction, but it gives information. It gives facts in a way, gives technical information. Certainly we have creative nonfiction as well too. And today's books are not your books from 30, 40 years ago that were dry and boring they have this vibrancy to them, having all this information told in engaging and exciting ways meant to both inform and to, to move you, to spur you to action, to see things that are wrong in the world and to encourage you hopefully to want to be a part of fixing that. But we can only do that if we look at the facts and that's facts certainly looking at hard facts like science, but also looking at statistics when we're thinking about systemic racism and trends and cause and effect of the past of how that relates to the future. And those are the facts that folks often don't want to see. And, and they're the most important in trying to make this country a better place for everyone. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I'd add anything to that. I, I think you're spot on. I just, we have to decide as a nation of individuals what we want to believe. And we can choose to believe anything that we want. And my hope is that people will decide to embrace the truth related to science and the, the truth that science tells us, right? You can draw your own conclusion from it, but there is a truth related to it. And I think as people decide to acknowledge and accept that, maybe we'll start to work together to combat some of the problems that we're going to have to face here over the short term and the long term. Yeah. Now, I did a little bit of reading about you and, and what your, I'm going to call it organization group, friends, <laughs> you know, click sure. is doing. I just thought yeah. it was really interesting. Like it's, it's interesting. I have not, you know, I think a lot about STEM. I think a lot, a lot about technology. I think a lot about reading. And I understand that there's an intersection, but the fact that you guys are really researching this and looking at this and thinking about this in a way, and you're part of this university thing and you're doing all this stuff, it's just an interesting thing I had not thought about before. It's going to be some things to think about. 
Thank you. And it's really fun approaching it the way that we do. And it's interesting when you go into these libraries and the maker spaces are not connected at all with the book side of the library. Right. And I'm like, you could use the book to introduce the Absolutely. 3D printing, right? And Absolutely. that's why Flashbacks is perfect for that. Yeah. It, it just gives you that, okay, right. now we've got a project. We saw it yeah. here and we can go and implement that. At low cost, a child, an adult, <laughs> can take something that they saw through and they can make it in the physical world. Like that is extremely special. It's one thing to, to draw something. It's much harder to physically manufacture something, but to take a design and in short course, use heat and plastic to physically have something like that's just amazing. Like I, I just, I, I'm just blown away about our ability to do that and what it's going to mean for the next future of makers and engineers. Thanks for talking with me today. And I, I do, I love all the stories that you're putting into the world and I love this collaboration. I do hope that uh, your brother pushes you into more. <laughs> we'll see, we'll see what the future holds. Who knows, who knows, who knows, we'll see, we'll see. DC, give us another call, we'll talk. Yeah, yeah absolutely. There you go. Um, <laughs> Jillian, thank, thank you, you very so much. much for having, having us. Really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. You just heard my interview with Varian and Darian Johnson. I had a blast talking to these guys. It was fascinating to see how their backgrounds in technology and engineering transferred to their work in the Flashbacks comic anthology. I also loved the active interest they've taken in sharing their love of learning and making with others. And now we know where Batman gets such wonderful toys. He 3D prints them. Flashbacks, 10 Terrific Tales About Science and Technology is a fun read featuring all of your favorite DC superheroes digging deep into cool STEM concepts. The stories provide a great introduction to everything from DNA to the deep sea to electricity and even outer space. There are lots of different and engaging art styles, and the book also includes hands-on experiments and activities that readers can try at home. One of the other things I really appreciated about this comic book anthology was the foreword by Maya Bialik. She shared her early struggles with science and talked about how growing up, she didn't see a place for a girl like her in STEM. Hopefully books like Ruth Spiro's Made by Maxine, The Flash Facts Comics, and Varian Johnson's awesome mystery book, The Parker Inheritance, will help more people see themselves in STEM and in the maker movement. So keep reading and tinkering and following your curiosity. You just might make the world a little more functional and fabulous, too. Thanks to our guests, Ruth Spiro, Darian Johnson, and Varian Johnson. You can learn more about our guests and their work in the show notes. And if you like exploring connections between science and fiction, check out the Future Telling series. These web shows are a collaboration between STEM Read and Northern Illinois University Libraries. Go to go.niu.edu slash futuretelling to find our past episodes with authors Mary Robinette Kowal, Maurice Broadus, M.T. Anderson, S.L. Huang, Daniel Krauss, Patrick Tomlinson, Joelle Charbonneau, and Aaron Starmer, as well as sci-fi editor extraordinaire Lynn M. Thomas, and experts from NIU, Fermilab, and Argonne National Lab. We'll also be posting information about our 2021 Future Telling web series, which will begin in April as we explore ways to future-proof the planet. We hope to see you there. This is the STEM Read Podcast. The STEM Read Podcast is produced in association with WNIJ. Support for the STEM Read Podcast comes from NIU STEAM and Northern Illinois University. Your future, our focus. Thanks for listening.